This podcast is brought to you by Langley & Benack, a full-service South and Central Texas law firm that delivers the highest quality legal advice coupled with exceptional client service. From our main office in San Antonio, we provide the resources of a national firm while maintaining close ties to the communities in which we practice. To learn more, please visit us at langleybenack.com. That's langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Today's episode is part four of a four-part series on bankruptcy law. This series is hosted by Clinton Butler. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in the Langley and Benack podcast are for information purposes only and should not be considered legal or professional advice for any particular situation. The presentation of this informational content does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website at www.langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Hello, this is Clinton Butler, and this is the four-part series on bankruptcy law in Texas. Today is our last episode in this series, and I've been delighted so far to interview such knowledgeable and talented attorneys. I've learned a lot uh, through this process that will certainly assist me in my own practice and will help me intelligently direct my clients to my partners uh, should they ever find themselves involved in a bankruptcy on either side of the docket. Today, in our final episode, I'm joined by two very special guests. David Gregg and Jim Hoffman. David and Jim, between the two of them, have over 80 years of experience in practicing bankruptcy law in Texas, and I cannot imagine all the stories that the two of them must have regarding the practice of bankruptcy in this state. Uh, But today, we're going to be focusing uh, our talk on what is a secured creditor, how to become a secured creditor, what it means to become a secured creditor, and how to you know, protect your rights as a secured creditor in the bankruptcy process. And so with that, let me introduce my guests, David Gregg and Jim Hoffman. David, good morning. Morning, Clinton. Uh, thank you for having me. Just uh, just so the listeners uh, know a little bit about myself, I'm a 1980 uh, graduate from the University of Texas Law School, did my undergraduate work at Rice. I uh, was uh, with, was with another law firm from 80 to 86, and in 1986, Steve Brook and I, our, our managing partner, uh, uh, left our respective firms and with two other lawyers started what is what is now uh, Langley and Benack. Um, and and uh, I am board certified in, uh, by the Texas Board of Legal Certifi- Certification in uh, business bankruptcy, and uh, through the years, represented uh, basically all types of parties that, that, that I can imagine in, in cases primarily in the state of Texas but also across the country, secured creditors, unsecured creditors, tr- represented trustees, uh, debtors, buyers, uh, broad a what array of uh, bankruptcy experience. Thank you. And Jim, good morning. Uh, tell us a little bit about you and your practice. Good morning, Clinton and David. Uh, I'm excited to be here. Uh, I'm of counsel with the firm of Langley and Banack, and that's been uh, since 2019. And I was previously with the firm of Clemens and Spencer 
an old firm in San Antonio. Uh, I was there for 37, 38 years approximately. Uh, I, my undergraduate work was at Notre Dame where I received a finance degree and then uh, uh, my law degree from uh, St. Mary's University here in San Antonio. Uh, like David, I practiced uh, in bankruptcy courts for around 40 years and have represented uh, basically every type of stakeholder imaginable uh, in those cases uh, and have been a court-approved uh, dispersing agent, uh, a court-approved mediator as well as counsel for everything from debtors to trustees to committees to uh, ad hoc groups. And uh, I've been very involved in uh, uh, the federal and uh, bankruptcy courts, uh, numerous uh, committees and bar associations. Great. So we've got two gentlemen here with us today. They've got a ton of experience in the area of bankruptcy, particularly business bankruptcy. And so what I want to concentrate today on in our final episode is secured creditors in the bankruptcy process. David, give us a 30,000 foot explanation of what is a secured creditor? A secured creditor is, is a creditor that, uh, that has a, a security interest or a lien against property that belongs to the debtor. Relatively speaking, I would, I would tell you that a secured creditor is, is much better off and is generally in much better shape in terms of uh, able to uh, have some say in his destiny and, and some better likelihood of getting, getting his or her money back. Uh, uh, secured creditors can, can, can come about the position of being secured basically two ways, through voluntary or involuntary liens. Uh, voluntary liens are in the form of uh, like a deed of trust or a security agreement. Uh, involuntary uh, security interest would be created, at, say, for a tax lien or a, a judgment lien, uh, some sort of possessory interest. Uh, so let's break those down real quick. So voluntary lien, that's something that, you know, I willingly, a contract that I as the debtor willingly enter into. So when I buy a house, you know, and I need to finance it because I can't pay just all the money up front, I grant the bank or lending institution a lien on my property, correct? That, that's correct. And, the, and, uh, uh, and, and generally speaking, uh, uh, most often we deal with voluntary security interests, either, either in a real estate situation in Texas here, uh, you have a, a deed of trust in a, with personal property or assets that aren't real estate, generally a, a security agreement. And uh, uh, one of the things that, that uh, uh, is really important uh, as you come into the situation is to look at your paperwork, the documentation, because that's, that's what gives you uh, the, the, the legally enforceable security interest. And so you need to be sure that your paperwork is done correctly, your deed of trust is recorded, your security agreement is signed, your UCCs are filed, your judgment lien is recorded because the paperwork is the serves as the basis for for your your rights. Going into the bankruptcy process, you want to make sure as a creditor that all the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed. Yes, right? sir. Be, yes, sir. Because other 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 creditors are are, are are jealous of your position, and and they a secured creditor has generally speaking has a, has a leg up on on unsecured creditors, and so it's just natural for unsecured creditors to try to look at your documentation to review your documentation to try to gain 
some leverage over you to better their position and make yours worse. Right. And, you know, in my, you know, uneducated bankruptcy mind, the way that I've explained secured creditors to people I've talked to, clients I've had that I automatically shuttle to my bankruptcy department is, you know, I, I say, you know, imagine you're at Six Flags and, you know, everybody's trying to get on the Rattler to go on that roller coaster and everybody's waiting in that line and that line is full of unsecured creditors, just people who are just waiting in the line. And then there's these people that've got these fast paths that allow them to go to the front of the line and they take priority over the, the other people without that fast pass. Those are the secured creditors. That's Those are the people who, regardless of whenever they file, because they've got that security interest, they get to go to the front of the line. That's, Is that right? That, that's, that's, that's right. Much, okay. much better off generally than, than an unsecured creditor. And an unsecured creditor is basically somebody that doesn't have a lien or a property interest or, or something that they can, they can attach the debt to. That's correct. Is that right? That's, that's right. Okay. That, that would be a general unsecured creditor that doesn't have, doesn't have a property interest mm -hmm. um, that they, so they could look to. Basically, that creditor just goes into the bankruptcy process and they're, they're looking just for whatever they can get. Generally speaking, and, and in many, many of these cases, they, you know, they're lucky to get pennies on the dollar. Right. You know, a lot of those unsecured creditors, depending on when they assert their claim, get zeroed out. That, that's zeroed out or very, very small. Recovery. Right. So we covered voluntary. Now, an involuntary lien, you mentioned judgments and, you know, things like that. that an involuntary lien, correct me if I'm wrong, would be basically, you know, through, through no consensual act on my part, I now have a lien on my property or something. Right. I mean, right? I, mean I think... So a, couple, a few examples of what I would think of as an involuntary lien would be would be a, a judgment lien where a creditor had gone through the legal process and had gotten a, a, a judgment against a debtor and had gone and uh, perfected that judgment lien through recording an abstract here in the state of Texas in the in the various counties where the debtor had property. A different type of involuntary lien could be a, uh, a tax lien. Here, here in the state of Texas, uh, with respect to real estate, ad valorem taxes, the annual taxes assessed by the generally the county or the other taxing authorities in the in in the county, basically where the property is, can uh, assert uh, uh, taxes, and those taxes become a lien until paid against against the property. Another example, in my mind, might be a possessory interest, where if I uh, uh, had my took my, my my vehicle to a, a repairman and he I didn't pay for it he he did the work and he 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 had a garageman's or a mechanics lien uh, that that's another type of, of security interest gotcha and so one thing I think is important for the audience to know is that you cannot get a security interest once the bankruptcy process started this is a front end deal. Generally, generally a front end. You know, it, as Jim can clarify, the, uh, the 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 bankruptcy process allows you if 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 there was only the simple uh, finalization, the recording of a of a uh, of an of an interest, and in, you you can do that after the bankruptcy. But you can't, generally speaking, you can't get a security interest without court approval after after the bankruptcy is filed. Jim, do you have anything that you'd like to add on just, you know, the basics of being a secure creditor or becoming a secure creditor? No, I think David covered it uh, very well. Uh, again, I, 
you know, the paperwork is essential on, on again, we call it consensual liens. That's one that we talked about uh, where you do it voluntarily. Uh, you got to make sure that the, uh, the debtor, uh, the entity you loan the money to, or that you have the debt against, is properly identified, correctly identified on your paperwork. And so I think later on we're going to talk about uh, some things we do before bankruptcy, but it's checking your documentation, as David mentioned. Uh, UCCs, which are Uniform Commercial Code filings, uh, have to be done timely. They have to be renewed timely, and they have to be filed in the appropriate uh, uh, correct uh, uh, filing office, which varies uh, depending on what kind of collateral it is. And uh, uh, when we're talking about collateral, uh, we're just talking about the assets that uh, the lender is looking at if they don't get paid from the debtor. Let's say the debtor's operations. Uh, the debtor is a is a uh, uh, a car dealer. You know the debtor has a lot of cars on its lot, and those are uh, provided by uh, uh, the 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 manufacturer of the vehicles, and and they're financed. And uh, so you you uh, uh, want to know if you're not going to be paid by the debtor's operations, selling cars and repairing cars and doing those kinds of things. The way you're going to get paid as a secure creditor is, is by looking at uh, the collateral, which is, in that case, the automobiles that are sitting on the lot. And you may also have a lien, again, on the parts that are in the parts department. Uh, those are, are very valuable items uh, because parts are needed for many, many, many years after a certain make and model of, of automobile is manufactured, and they tend to retain their value. Um, so. That's really what collateral means, but uh, I think David did a good job of, of identifying how you get there and, and uh, such. So Jim, let me give you a, a, a question here. Now, as a secured creditor, is my status as a secured creditor limited solely to that collateral that I've got a security interest on? Meaning, and you know, let's say that the debtor goes into bankruptcy and they've got assets X, Y, and Z and I'm the creditor and I've got you know, a deed of trust or a voluntary lien or an involuntary lien on security interest X. You know, I don't have anything on X or Y. Am I entitled to go after X and Y as a secured creditor or is my status as a secured creditor limited to that asset X that I've got a deed of trust on or a judgment on or you know, a lien on of some sort? Yeah, so you're going to be limited by the terms of your documents and the security interest that's created and granted in the uh, security agreement uh, will define uh, in the description of property what it is that you're holding a lien on or, or in, as we talked about earlier, the debtor is granting or giving to the lender a security interest in. That is the collateral which that creditor can look at. Now that, in most debtor situations, when we're talking about a bankruptcy, if they ever had any what we call free and clear assets, those are ones that they hadn't pledged. In your scenario, Y and Z uh, hadn't been pledged to the lender we're talking about, only X. Uh, those have probably been pledged or, or uh, uh, a security interest has been granted to a lender uh, for additional funding. Uh, capital and, and, and operating funds for the debtor's operations. Uh, if there are assets when a bankruptcy is filed, 
that a security interest has not attached to. An attachment is a term of art that requires both uh, the creation of the security interest and the perfection. Uh, if there is property such as that, that's what the bankruptcy courts look at as free and clear property, that uh, the, the debtor can go out and borrow money on that. And that's what the unsecured creditors then look at for potentially getting paid on their claims. If there's something out there that the secured lender doesn't have a lien on, uh, that's a, a good asset uh, that if it's sold or if it's uh, uh, inventory, uh, which is, is then sold and, and turned into accounts receivable that are then collected, well, that's money that after the debtor pays for its operations can go to pay the unsecured creditors. So they're very interested, as David said, in looking at, at, at assets that don't have a lien against them and if they can find and punch some holes in a lender's documents, they may have just found some 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 take away my fast pass. Yeah, yeah right. Take away yeah, your fast pass. I don't, pass get to, a, I don't get to skip the line anymore. Right. You don't That's get right. To skip yeah. The line it turns anymore. out my fast pass was for the day before, and now I don't yeah. I don't <laughs> get to get into the right. rattlers fast as I thought it was. Um, so let me let me ask you this: If let's say that you as a debtor owe me as a creditor $100,000 and I got a lien on your car, liquidate your car and it's $30,000 and so I get the $30,000, I still got $70,000 of debt against you, right? For that $70,000, do I then just get in the back of the line uh, as an unsecured creditor on the remaining $70,000? That is correct. Under, you know, there's different types of bankruptcies and different classes of creditors can be treated differently in different types of bankruptcies. Uh, chapter 11 will have a plan that gets confirmed, uh, and that plan will detail how different classes are treated. But uh, say in a, in a traditional Chapter 7 scenario, where there is no plan, everything is liquidated and paid out uh, pursuant to a statutory scheme, uh, the, the unsecured portion or undersecured portion of that lender's claim, as you say, the $70,000 are still owed, would fall into the general unsecured class and share pro rata with whatever dollars get paid to the unsecured creditors. Gotcha. So David, let's say that, you know, I'm a little bit nefarious as a debtor and I've pledged uh, a security interest on the same asset, asset X, to two or three different people. You know, who gets first crack at that asset uh, between all of my creditors? Well. I mean, and, and that some desperate people do desperate things. Desperate potential debtors do. I'm desperate in a desperate things. situation here, and and that that happens. Generally speaking, and that that's why the documentation is so important. Generally speaking, the creditor that is first perfected first does everything that it needs to do to to create and perfect to have an enforceable lien. Uh, generally, that person is is on first. And yeah. so then it just becomes a battle of trying to, it's basically king of the mountain where that, you're just trying correct. to knock people off the top spot. That, that's, that's correct. And that, so how do you go about just generally, if you can, well, you know, well, getting that? Before, you know, and, and what a generally, like a, for instance, a bank, they, they would run, if a borrower, potential borrower came to them, they, they would, uh, and the borrower proposed to borrow X and, and give uh, give property against uh, give a lien on, on that property they would do a uh, uh, 
run the records on the real estate records to see what the liens were, to see what was perfected. Similarly, in a in a, a personal property, non-real estate, you would a potential borrower would look at the UCC filings in the, in the in the Secretary of State or in some instances in the county where the assets were to see if there were other prior prior perfected uh, security interests. That that's how you would check double check to verify what what the what the borrower is is telling you so basically like for real estate you'd want to check as a creditor you'd want to check to see are there any deeds of trust on this property that have been recorded that's correct and and and, and also the and that, that's another reason why you would you would check like a, a, the judgment liens those mm -hmm. are also recorded in the counties and in uh, your title company searches would would pick up both of those generally and, and, so and tax tax liens as well from the in, from the IRS in our or, hypothetical here if you know, if I got a loan from Jim and he got a deed of trust from me for my property, but, you know, just brain fart or whatever, just hadn't recorded his deed of trust. And then I come to you and I get a loan from you for that and using that same property as collateral, but you record your deed of trust, even though he gave me the loan first, even though he got a deed of trust from me, in that instance, my, you my, would take priority, My right? perfection should be right, and that's bankruptcy courts determine the rights of, of lien holders uh, all the time. Right. And Compe so just, competing interests of lien holders. Um, that's probably one of the bigger areas of fights that yes. you guys get into is who's the you know number one secured creditor for this asset. That's right? correct. That's correct. And so going back to our earlier you know statement, you got to dot those I's, you got to cross those that's, T's. Right. Yeah. And so. Jim, one term that has come up previously that I'd like for you to explain to us is, what is an oversecured creditor? Uh, explain that to us. So an oversecured creditor is, uh, depending on the collateral for the loan, and we talked about what that is earlier, and uh, uh, the efficacy of its valuation, uh, an oversecured creditor is an entity that holds a perfected security interest in property, uh, the value of which exceeds its debt taking into account all senior secured debt. And let me kind of explain that because... Put that in some real world terms because yeah. I'm swimming just hearing what you just well, said. Well, we, we've talked about giving a consensual lien. Well, big companies have many lenders and they, they fall into certain priorities. Some have intercreditor agreements where they share the same collateral and they share the same loan. But you'll have in, in, in most cases, you'll have a, a primary lender, a first lien lender. You'll have, you can have secondary lenders. They're the, 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 the financiers that, that loan you money, and they're hoping that there's more value uh, in the collateral uh, than, than is, would need to uh, take care of the <clears throat> first debt. You can have mezzanine lenders. You can have all kinds of lenders that come into to bankruptcy cases. And again, as David mentioned earlier, you have taxes. So every year, at least in the state of Texas, uh, the tax lien springs into existence on January 1 for whatever taxes are due that year, not the prior year. Uh, the lien actually uh, uh, springs into existence on January 1 and, and lives until it's paid. So you're going to have, even if you're the first lien lender, voluntary lender, those taxes have jumped ahead of you 
You're hoping that the, that the debtor has made appropriate uh, projections and arrangements to pay the taxes uh, when they're due, so there's no penalties and things. But if not, those taxes have primed you. Uh, so you've gone from first place into second place. And so, you know, you're talking about... Uh, what, what you the IRS to, has, like, the ultimate fast pass, right? I mean, I'd They do, except the IRS... Uh, or the state. In this case. Yeah, so the, the state uh, ad valorem taxes are statutory. The IRS liens have to actually attach. So IRS uh, doesn't always take priority just because taxes have not been paid. They actually have to go through a process before they become, as David mentioned earlier, of record that a lender who's looking through the uh, doing the, the title run uh, on, the, on the real estate would see a federal tax lien is owed by the entity that owns this property. That could be years after those taxes are not paid, whereas uh, ad valorem taxes that you owe uh, to the county and the school district and, and those types of things springs into existence on January 1 of every year. But basically, a, an oversecured creditor is, 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 is a creditor that, that under your scenario earlier, if, if uh, you loan me $100 and I give you a lien in my car, on my car, and uh, my car is worth one hundred and fifty dollars. Uh, you're an oversecured creditor. Uh, you know that I owe you one hundred dollars if I don't pay you back. If you properly perfected your security interest in my car, which is a certificate of title and notating your lien on it, just like every fi car finance company in the world does, uh, you can go repossess that car, and you can sell it at an auction, and hopefully it's worth one hundred and fifty dollars. And so you pay yourself the hundred dollars. You pay for the lawyers you hired to help you uh, collect the money, you pay for your expenses, and then the excess money you give back to me uh, is how uh, an oversecured creditor works. Um, and and an oversecured creditor, and in a lot of instances, I think you know when you're pledging, you know, I think you you mentioned this in the beginning of your talk on it is that you know businesses have huge assets that they'll have multiple creditors on that if you know let's just take somebody in a business in my my world oil and gas you know if chesapeake goes bankrupt uh chesapeake's you know got these huge oil and gas assets that probably have multiple layers of creditors on each one of those assets and so you know there may be a creditor that you know has priority that they owe fifty thousand dollars on an oil and gas well, you know, as collateral. And, you know, the the sale or liquidation of that particular well would be well in excess of 50,000. And so you first, you know, use that 50,000 from the sale to satisfy creditor one, and then you just keep marching down the list of, you know, priority uh, with whatever remains from the uh, from the sale of that. Is that correct? Yeah, that's the way it works in, in, in a liquidation scenario. So right. when you're liquidating that asset, that well, so to speak, uh, in, in most of the uh, oil and gas bankruptcies I've been involved in, and there have recently been quite a few in Houston, uh, large uh, uh, operators and drillers and, mm -hmm. and other folks uh, uh, that have filed to reorganize their, their debt, uh, you know, they, have, they, have, they propose plans of reorganization, and they get together and, and try and work things out even though they're in bankruptcy, they don't litigate everything. They, they want to sit down with their creditors and say, well, here's what we got, here's what we think the future looks like, and here's what we think we can do to get everybody paid. And uh, 
So you're not looking at, at liquidating in, in those situations, but you are defining uh, for each of the creditors, secured creditors primarily, what their collateral is, what you intend to do with it. Uh, you can get rid of some of the collateral, you can sell some, and then hopefully retain the stuff that really makes you money as a business. And uh, if you do that, as we talked about earlier, whichever creditor has the, the perfected lien on that asset that you're selling would get paid first. And if there's some money left over after that, then if they're secondary lenders, uh, uh, they get paid. And whoever uh, has a lien on that, uh, uh, once the, the value of that is gone, they fall into the unsecured category. Um, and so, you know, it depends, again, under, under what type of bankruptcy. And we see many Chapter 11s that are filed with hopes of reorganization that simply don't make it. Right. Uh, after everybody takes a hard look at, at what's gone on and what's going on and really what assets there are and uh, what the economy's like currently, that, that uh, it's just not going to make it. And many times those cases convert to what we call a Chapter 7 liquidation where a trustee gets appointed, and and uh, Dave and I have represented trustees for 40 years, and and uh, the trustee knows how to sell assets. Sometimes the lawyers that represent trustees need to fight about who has a lien on the proceeds and and uh, who gets to credit bid. Part of being a secured creditor, one of the things that you get to do uh, if an asset's going to be sold is you get to credit bid. You get to, without reaching into your wallet any further and putting new money on the table, you get to say, well, I'm owed $100 and I'm secured for that $100 and I don't think you're selling that well for enough. So I'm going to bid my $100 that I'm owed. And again, if you may be the winning buyer of that asset without having to go into your pocket. So how do you know if you're an oversecured creditor? Well, mainly it's done with appraisals. Uh, when we talked about real estate earlier mm -hmm. and uh, real estate Again, you have to define what the value of, of, the, of the assets are, the collateral for the loan. And uh, value is determined in different ways for different types of assets. We talked about real estate. Generally, you have um, MIA appraisers that, that, that do appraisals, and they base that on comparable sales of, of real estate is one method. Then they look at the income approach, which is how much income does that property make? And they can come up with a valuation of what that property is worth, especially if it's rental property. And then replacement value. What does it cost to replace that property, a building, a structure? Uh, if it costs you know, uh, $20 million to replace it, that's a, a method that's determined, uh, uh, used to determine what the value is. Uh, if you're talking about uh, 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 you have a lien on a stock portfolio, then you're going to be, uh, the, the, the value of that is determined by the uh, the exchange market price, uh, if it's a traded stock. Uh, if you're secured, we talked earlier about uh, automobiles. Uh, that's going to be uh, NADA, which is National Automobile Dealers Association. They, they have valuation software on computers. They used to have little yellow books that, that everybody used to, to look up the value of their car, used car, uh, or uh, Kelly Blue Book. Uh, so depending on what the collateral is, you, you figure out what the best way and the most accepted way is to value that. And the courts will then determine how much weight they're going to give uh, uh, your valuation and whether you are truly oversecured or you're not oversecured.
And I mean, are there any adverse consequences to being oversecured? Very few adverse consequences. I mean, you'd rather much be oversecured than undersecured, right? Yes, sir. Uh, again, you're if you're unable to be paid by whatever business the debtor operates, your ultimate security, the the assets that you have a lien on, are going to become your your sole method of repayment. And if there's excess value in those assets over what you're owed, you'll be able to pay off not only your debt, but you'll be able to pay off whatever interest is accrued on that debt. You may be able to get default rate interest on that debt. You'll be able to recover all the attorney's fees and expenses uh, uh, that you incurred, appraisals that you had done, surveys, environmental studies, all kinds of things. Being oversecured, as long as that pot of money is big enough to cover uh, uh, your debt uh, and, and, and all your other expenses, you get to recover all of that. Whereas a, a, a creditor that is, that is undersecured, where the value of the collateral is not enough to cover the debt, will only get what that value is. Right. And so, David, you know, we've talked about in previous episodes and briefly here, you know, a bankruptcy plan, basically, you know, how a company would reorganize itself in order to, you know, keep going or uh, how it would liquidate its debts. When, when presented with a bankruptcy plan, what is it that a secured creditor needs to be looking for? Well, well primarily what you're interested in is, is what does the plan do to, in terms of treatment is what it's called, what is the proposal to, to, to pay me as a secured creditor? And so you, you how am I getting my money? How am I getting my money? Is the is uh, is the debtor going to hold on to my assets and try try to uh, conduct conduct business in in the in the future and somehow generate future profits to pay me? Does the debtor in a, in a situation where real estate does the debtor say he's going to hold on to my real estate and he's going to try to sell it, market it in the future, and and uh, in, a, in that Rent type of it and pay me from the proceeds. That that's lease correct. Or, However, it's so it's the 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 treatment. That's that's what you you care about in a in a plan. And 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 does the debtor try to change uh, the the terms of of how you are going to be paid? The 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 time, you know, when the debt matured or went, what the interest rate was or what the payments, whether the payments. You know, we're, we're we're supposed to be monthly, and the debtor proposes a different, either an annual payment or simply says that there's such a what's called an equity cushion. Uh, and Jim's talking about oversecured. If the 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 value of the property the debtor says is worth so much more than what you're owed, then then the debtor may propose that you basically you the secure creditor be forced to sit still, to sit down and wait until I. He can sell it, or some event happens and and pay you. So you need to look at, at what the, the the plan proposes and uh, and 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 decide, determine whether that's acceptable to you. And if not, then you object to the plan, or you. Uh, we haven't really talked about filing a motion for relief from stay yet. But you're, as a secured creditor, you're able to go to the court and say, for whatever reason. Uh, I want. I don't want to play anymore. I want. I want. I want to be able to foreclose. I want to be able to exercise my my rights as a secured creditor against my collateral, basically outside of the bankruptcy context. And, and in a previous episode, Natalie and I talked about you know 
staying proceedings and you know basically everything shuts down once right. that bankruptcy gets filed and you're you know one thing you're talking about is is that if the secured creditor doesn't like the plan if it's just not going to work for them you can seek to you know at least for your collateral for your security interest terminate that stay is you that can, right you can seek to terminate the stay you can seek to object to the plan there are other remedies. Jim talked about different types of bankruptcy. What we've generally been talking about would seem to apply to a Chapter 11, but you can say, Judge, this, this, this whole reorganization is not going anywhere. I think you should convert or change the case to a Chapter 7 liquidation. Mm -hmm. You have all of those rights, and a, a secured creditor needs to look closely because otherwise the, what is proposed by the debtor, if not objected to, changes the deal, can right. change the terms. And so you can't, as a secure creditor, you can't just rely on, you know, you, on your underlying documents because those, those, some of those terms can be changed. Right. And you need to, you know, certainly comb through whatever reorganization or, you know, treatment they plan to do for your debt in order to make sure that's something that you and your client can live with that you think is feasible. Let me ask this, if, if you don't object to the, to the treatment or the proposed plan, at least for your interest, um, does it basically just get rubber stamped? Often, oftentimes it does. If, mm -hmm. there, if there's no objection, I mean, the, the bankruptcy courts, they, they like to approve plans. And they, they, so, so if you don't object, if you go along, uh, then that, that, that treatment, that changed the deal, could be could be imposed on you. The bankruptcy courts put the burden on the creditors to say, "Hey, you, know, you tell us if there's something wrong here, because otherwise, That's we're right. we're not going to put our own spin on what we think a fair plan would be." That, that, that's right. Although they there are some, you know, they don't look out for the rights of secure creditors. In per, and in particular, uh, they're generally speaking, secure creditors are so much better off that that the uh, the, the U.S. Trustee's Office or other folks who, who sort of look over these cases look out for the rights of the little guy, the, which in this case would be the unsecured creditors. Uh, secured creditors need to be proactive in, in protecting their interests, preserving their rights. Um, otherwise, the, the, as I say, the, the deal can be changed on them. As a litigator, I am morally and ethically bound to love war stories, and so I like to I like to end um, our conversations uh, with you know trying to get the uh, the guests to give me a, a memorable story involving the topic of the day. And so, Jim and David, can y'all can y'all give me you know without <laughs> violating attorney-client privilege, uh, give me a memorable story uh, that you've got, and feel free to change the names to protect the innocent. Uh, involving a secured creditor and how it either went right when it shouldn't or went wrong when it when it should have gone right. Well, it's, yeah, and, and frankly, it's a it's a story that Dave and I were both involved in uh, many many years ago in different capacities. Uh, but but uh, I was uh, uh, primarily involved in a case where a large uh, floor plan lender, and we talked about car dealerships earlier. So this lender had loaned on the floor plan, which is the uh, new vehicle inventory of, uh, of, uh, of, of an automobile dealer, actually. It's the revolving line of credit that allows them to purchase new inventory, right? Right. 
And so the, all those cars on the lots you see when you drive by, uh, those are floor planned, which means the, the manufacturer has made them and then the, the lender pays for the car uh, so that it can appear on the, on the dealer's lot. And then the dealer uh, goes about his business of selling those vehicles. And, uh, and title is usually held by the lender in this circumstance, right? Right, and, and so on new vehicles, it, it's, it's, you know, the, the term of art is the MSO, a manufacturer's statement of origin. And uh, that comes from the manufacturer. And because it, it has to be an untitled vehicle, previously untitled, uh, those are held uh, uh, usually at the dealership, although things are electronic now, so things have changed since this story. But uh, in the old days when this happened, they were held at the dealership so that uh, if somebody came in to buy a new car or a new truck, uh, the dealer could, could get that uh, transaction accomplished and, and prepare the title work and, and have the MSO there to be sent over to the title office where uh, a new certificate of title would be issued in the name of the new owner of that vehicle. So we had a lender with a very, very large floor plan for a couple of uh, dealerships, one in San Antonio, one in Houston. It was alleged that they were complicit, this lender, in uh, accepting some documents that may not have been uh, completely accurate uh, about what was going on with their collateral, the inventory of, of vehicles that were supposed to be on the lot. Uh, they, the argument was they were doing that to try and keep what was at the time their largest dealership in America afloat. But they, they somehow learned that uh, a lot of their vehicle inventory was missing. They came in at the middle of the night with hundreds of drivers in two different cities simultaneously, removed hundreds and hundreds of vehicles, basically repossessed those, and so the dealer was left without any inventory to sell. That's quite a Tuesday morning to walk into the office and see all of your cars on your lot are now gone. They're all gone. You're basically out of business, except if you are a dealer, then, then you have a franchise with a manufacturer. And uh, we were able to, to press the manufacturer to provide new vehicles. And so what we had to do was find a new lender because the old lender had taken back all of their vehicles and they weren't gonna loan any more money. But we were able to get a new lender to come in that then monitored with what we call a keeper, had a keeper at the dealership that kept physical possession of what we referred to as the titles, the MSOs. And so no vehicle Basically, was... Basically, they, 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 had a, uh, they had like a vice principal stashed at the dealership to make sure everything was going all right. Sitting right there, and if a sale was made, the paperwork was walked through, and whatever funds were available for the purchase of that uh, were then paid to the lender on that vehicle and, and again on new vehicles uh, you're selling them for more than, than what you put them on the on the lot for so that's how the dealer made money and continued in a, in a chapter 11 for years and years while a lot of very expensive litigation went on with the lender that had previously repossessed all their all their vehicles and they claimed they were owed multi-million dollars. Uh, and through uh, trials and appeals and millions of dollars of attorney's fees, that lender ended up receiving zero beyond the vehicles that they had picked up that fateful night. And, and kind of the moral of that story was that the dealership, uh, again, uh, wanted to work things out with that initial lender. And because 
the lender, this was their largest two dealerships in the country, was forcing some vehicles on them to take allotments of vehicles that they really couldn't afford to take. There should have been a, a give and take, and if an appropriate uh, mechanism, such as the vice principal you mentioned, had put, been put in place, I believe the lender could have realized more money on its debt than it ultimately did. This became one of those uh, uh, situations where that lender just simply said, no, uh, even though we may have looked the other way in the past, we're not looking the other way anymore, and we're taking our stuff, we're taking our ball, and we're going home. So what's the moral of that story? I mean, you know, who, who came out, you, you say the lender could have done a better deal, but it sounds like in that story the lender had just said, you know what, I, I can't, I just can't anymore. And, you know, I, I, oftentimes you tell your clients, look, self-help is not the way to go. But in this instance, it sounded like the lender had just said, you know, I can't continue to do business with this person. We're going to get what we can get. We're going to get these vehicles that we know we've got uh, collateral on. And we're just getting out of here. Now, in this instance, you know, did the lender come out okay on this? Did, do you think that the lender kind of made a good business decision? Or would you have counseled that lender to go about a different way? Yeah, and since I didn't represent the lender, uh, I was on the other side of the case, I just thought that, that the lender was short-sighted because one of the negotiations that could have been made was, okay, we'll do a deal, we'll work out a deal. Uh, uh, first of all, we're putting a keeper in the dealer, keep an eye on those MSOs. You're going to file a bankruptcy and we're going to agree that a trustee is appointed in that bankruptcy. And the trustee is going to run the business going down the road. The people that the lender didn't trust and, and, and those people at the dealership that didn't trust the lender because they had kind of pulled the rug out from under them after, uh, again, accepting a lot of, of documentation over the years that the lender knew was not correct, uh, could have been supplanted by uh, kind of an independent third party, a trustee, that could have run the operation. Uh, trustees are bonded, uh, so there's, there's a lot of protections that can be built into an arrangement like that. But you have to have the, the willingness to sit down and look at those options. And so one of the things that Dave and I have done over our careers is sit down with our clients, whether they be the debtor, the guy that borrowed the money, or the lender, the guy that loaned the money, and tell them what their options are. Mm -hmm. uh, so they, they, they make informed decisions. And there are a lot of very creative ways to work out problems. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and generally, workouts end with a better result for all involved than a termination, uh, uh, I'm taking my ball and going home, the business is shut down, and nobody gets paid anything yeah. at and, that point. And that's, that is, I guess, the common thread that I've found in my talks with the bankruptcy people in these podcasts, in my own practice in oil and gas, is that both practices um, really reward the creative mind. That um, there are so many ways to skin a cat in a oil and gas dispute as to, look, you know, here's what we can do in order to make this right without the parties having to get into, like you said, you know, multi-million dollar litigation that oftentimes doesn't produce the results for either side that, that you're looking for. And it sounds like bankruptcy is very similar, where you know there are so many options, there's so many different paths that the parties can take that 
if they if they can reach a point where they can sit down in the same room with each other and oftentimes that's the biggest hurdle you know they, i know that's an oil and gas context where you know trust is just broken and you know just i cannot look that sob in the eye anymore you know i mean that it gets to that point but if you can if you can conquer that kind of personal animus and make it a you know strictly business decision uh, you can oftentimes get to a point if you've got creative people on both sides uh, that you can solve the problem in a way that you know allows you both sides a a win-win or at least not a lose-lose that's always the hope uh, you know sometimes things work out sometimes they don't but but I think it, it, it's, it's important to make sure that, that whoever your client is in a certain scenario knows what the options are. Yeah. And again, as you say, they may not be able to sit in the same room with each other. And if so, then, then all hope may be lost. But there's, there's ways to work around that too. You can bring in third parties, neutrals. Sure. You can try and get some folks involved uh, uh, that don't have personal animus uh, towards each other and see if you can't work something out. Well, gentlemen, uh, I've learned a lot just through the process of osmosis through th this talk, and you know, I'm sure our audience has as well. I want to thank you both for joining me uh, on our final bankruptcy podcast. Uh, this has been Clinton Butler, and I want to thank the audience for joining us for this four-part series. I hope everyone has learned something. Uh, I know I certainly have. I want to uh, extend my great thanks to uh, Dickie, Allen, Natalie, and our two guests today, David and Jim, for sharing their knowledge and expertise with us. If you need any more information or would like to speak with any of our attorneys uh, on bankruptcy issues or any other issues, uh, please visit us at our website at www.langleybanack.com or just give us a call. Uh, one of the attorneys here at the firm will be happy to talk to you. And once again, I want to thank our audience for joining us and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today for the Langley and Banach podcast. Please subscribe to get the latest updates. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website, www.langleybanach.com or call us at 210-736-6600.